Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from a church past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, listeners. Happy New Year. It is 2022. This pandemic is just the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? But let's not get into that. Thank you for returning for the completion of this topic and series. I apologize for the delay, but um, to be honest, I kind of feel like y'all should be used to it by now. (laughs) Um, January is a difficult month to be productive in, so... I have been working really hard. This episode's coming out now, and I expect the next episode, which will be the final episode of this topic and series, will be out by the end of the month or very early next month. This is topic three of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, part seven of series four, Treasures of Kansas City. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. I'm so pleased that you decided to check it out. But please pause and go back and listen to parts one through six first. Uh, It'll make a lot more sense. And then if you enjoyed all of that, I hope that you will also listen to topics one and two of this series, which were the Western Auto Building and the Country Club Plaza. If you have listened to the entirety of this saga, then thank you for your perseverance. It's been a journey. (laughs) Here we go. Let's just dive in. Recap. Mary Atkins and the entire Nelson family left money in their estates for the creation of an art museum in Kansas City in the early 1900s. These various estates finally all got together to plan a single museum, which opened in December 1933. Several of the museum's first employees were members of the Monuments Men and Women during World War II, so I had a whole episode dedicated to them. Um, But that meant that in the 1940s, the museum was run by some badass ladies while the men were overseas at war. Also, they are fully covered. The 1950s saw the museum's 25th anniversary and the expansion of several of its programs. Continued to thrive in the 60s and 70s. 1977 saw the retirement of Lawrence Sickman, who was the second director of the museum. And it saw the rise of Ralph Coe as the third museum director. So today we are going to explore the history of the 80s and 90s. There is a lot of turnover. A lot of people coming and leaving the museum. And, of course, money is an issue. Again. Again. It's a never-ending issue, especially with this museum. Uh, The museum also celebrated its 50th and 60th anniversaries during these two decades. Woohoo! And let me just say now that there are so many people who are coming and going from the museum that I am not able to give biographies for all of them, even though I've done that on past employees. Uh, I wish I could, it just, I do not have enough time. So, Ralph Coe became the museum's third director on February 1st, 1977. In 78, the museum reached out to Edgar Peters Bowrun at the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore to become the new curator of European art. But they offered it to him on a trial basis, and he was like, yeah, no. So then Coe asked him to be his assistant and the curator of Western European Renaissance art. 
Quote, this appointment would allow Coe to continue as curator of 19th century art, Ellen Goheen as curator of 20th century art, and Marilyn Stockstad as a consulting curator of medieval art. While Mark Wilson headed the Oriental Art Department, George McKinnon served as registrar and curator of prints, and Ross Taggart remained senior curator. So the board was even like, yeah, we really want you. We're going to get a job for your wife. She's going to teach at Sunset Hill. You'll have free tuition for your kids, of which they had two. Look, you can even live at this house that we own, or sorry, a duplex that we own. Um, it's on East 45th Street. So Bowman's like, oh, yes, that's a much better offer. I'll take that one. As you would. <laughs> they also hired Beverly Rosenberg. She became the museum's first public information officer, a.k.a. she's basically the publicist. So, like, if she was being hired for the first time today, her job would be social media, like promoting the museum, right? Obviously, they have someone else doing that now, and we didn't have social media back in the 70s, but just to give you an idea of what that job entails. So Catherine Haskins was hired in February 78 to replace Ann Topkins as museum librarian. Sadly, Catherine did not have an office when she began. She didn't even have a desk, um, and that's because the Kenneth A. and Helen F. Spencer Art Reference Library, which was discussed in the previous episode, was actually still under construction. But it was completed very soon, and the library did open in October of that same year, 78. Yet, Wolferman reported that Hawkins was really unhappy and frequently complained about the library's lack of funding and lack of staff. So, no surprise, she resigned in December of 1979. Stanley Hess, who was the librarian at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which the Nelson has always had a fairly good relationship with. They, they modeled a lot of their structure after them, uh, a lot of how they wanted to arrange the art after them. And I think there are a few other, if I'm remembering this correctly, a few other... Um, employees who have come from that museum. Where was I? Anyway, so they um, they reached out to the Cleveland Art Museum's librarian, and he was hired to fill the opening in February 1980. Um, backing up ever so slightly, so Larry Eckleberry, which you'll remember from the last episode, was the director of education. He also left in 78, just like I said, lots of people come in and going. He was replaced by Anne Brubaker, who was a former Rockefeller Foundation fellow. Mr. Milton McGreevy, a university trustee for 31 years, retired in 1980. And Donald Hall of Hallmark Cards, dude will have his own episode someday, was selected to succeed him. Y'all, okay, this one is really exciting. You're never going to guess what happened in 1980. So in 1980, the Emancipation Proclamation, the real, actual, physical, original document kept in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., signed on September 22, 1862 by President Abraham Lincoln. And for those who don't remember American history from high school or you don't live in America, this is like the second most important document in our history, the first being the Declaration of Independence. And the Emancipation Proclamation outlawed slavery in America, finally, dear God, and it granted freedom to enslaved individuals. Okay, so this 
real physical original document came to Kansas City and was put on public display at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art for four days from May 15th to May 18th in 1980. How friggin' cool is that? That would be just like if all of a sudden the Declaration of Independence came. It's just, wow. It was arranged by Director Coe and Horace Peterson, the founding director of the Black Archives of Mid-America, which are also in Kansas City. And that place is super cool. If you ever come visit Kansas City, please go check it out. The current director is Dr. Karma. I spoke with her in uh, February 2020 for Black History Month. She is so passionate about the work they're doing there. And they're, it's just, it's incredible. So please go if you live in Kansas City or if you come visit Kansas City, please go. All right. So back on track. <clears throat> Get this. Quote, although the university trustees recognized that the curators were overburdened and that the museum required more staff, by the end of 1978, their funds were stretched, were, were so stretched that they began to seek a way to reduce personnel, end quote. That is so frustrating. I know you have to balance it, but come on. We s well, Look, we got this in my day job, all right? My coworkers are always like, I'm overworked. I need more people. And the owners are like, we don't have money to hire more people. And we're like, yeah, you do. Um, anyways, it's, it's so frustrating when they're like, you're overburdened. Let's get rid of people. So first they want to get rid of Taggart's assistant because... Taggart only runs three departments, the ancient world, decorative arts, and American art. He can totally do that on his own, does not need an assistant. And Goheen and Rosenberg, they don't need to share that secretary. We can get rid of her. And despite this, we can still give Code Taggart, Wilson, and Bowren, the new one, a raise. Oh yeah. Yeah, we can raise them and we can fire everybody else. It's cool. All right, and go ahead. We can give her a raise, too. But she's a woman. So she gets way less than her male counterparts. In an effort to relieve some of the growing tension because everyone is complaining now, um, including the department heads and the curators, the board hires Arthur Frantzeb. No, hang on, I didn't say that right. Frantzreb. It's F-R-A-N-T-Z-R-E-B. Um... He's a consultant. They hire him to come in. And for like a year, he talks to everybody. He looks over all the books. He just, he does his research, right? He comes up with five suggestions to help this. One, create an accurate depiction description of each job. Because right now, everyone's like, well, I just do it. <laughs> well, what about this? Oh, yeah, I do that too. Well, what about this? Well, they'll do it, or they'll do it. It's whoever's available, right? That's basically the situation. So create an accurate description of jobs. Number two, create an internal planning community, uh, committee, excuse me, to study the role, mission, and future direction of the gallery. We need to make sure we're on task, y'all. Number three, reorder museum finances, obviously. Number four, hire a director of resource development. So two, three, and four are basically all the same there. And then five, expand the museum's governing board. Well, okay, they're not the same, but they're really connected. 
So despite their wish to downsize, the correct answer all along was hire more people, obviously. So in 1981, they hired Steven Geiger as the comptroller, a.k.a. the uh, chief accounting officer. First one ever. It's been 50 plus years and we haven't had a uh, CAO yet. They also hired a business manager and they established a business office. Again, I can't believe that it's taken so long. Um, so the money had always been handled by the three university trustees that were um, created by Mr. Nelson's original will. Um, but the museum actually took the will to court again. I mentioned that once before. And the circuit court again sided with the museum. Maybe it's just me, but that seems like really extraordinary that they're like, oh yeah, we can dismiss this part of the will. Not once, but twice. Um, but the end result was the creation of this business manager. So the uh, control of the finances were not solely with the university trustees. So they hired Roger Van Wagner as the first business manager. Um, Wolferman doesn't mention it at all. But to be honest, I kind of feel like the university trustees were probably not happy with this. Um, I feel like they probably would have wanted to keep control of the money. But it's better that they don't. Also in 81 was the creation of the Resource Development Office hired by, uh, sorry, led by new hire, Lancy Holmquist. We had a couple of retirees in 81. Bo Run, who we had just gotten, he left the museum to become museum director at the North Carolina Museum of Art in Raleigh. Ellen Goheen, who's been there for like, I don't know, 30 years? A long time. She retired, but then kind of not really because she came back part-time to be a senior lecturer and program coordinator at the education department. So like... At my day job, that happens a lot too. Like, I'm in my 70s. I'm going to retire. But I'm going to work part-time. And that sucks, right? Like, first of all, you shouldn't have to, to work every day just to, so that you can pay rent into your 70s and 80s. You should be able to retire when you're young and have the physical energy and health to enjoy retirement. So... Like, you should be able to retire in your 50s, I would say. Or at least in your early 60s. Like it used to be. It was like that when I was a kid. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. I'm sorry. It's a major pet peeve. Where are we? So, um, George McKenna, who has been there... Oh, he joined in, like, the 40s. He's been there a long time. Maybe the 50s. Um, and he's been registrar this whole time he also um his job changed he didn't retire he just changed he became the full-time curator of prince drawings and photographs in 1981 so kudos to him that's awesome they hired jay gates who was the former director of the brooks memorial gallery in memphis tennessee to be director co's assistant nancy holmquist who had just become the director of development she only stayed for about a year and then in 82, she was replaced by James Forbes. Also in 82, Roger B. Ward joined the museum as the curator of European painting and sculpture. Ward was a graduate of KU and had earned his PhD at the uh, Courtauld Institute at the University of London. It's a C-O-R, no, C-O-U-R-T-A, 
U L D. Yeah, I probably still didn't spell that right, but um, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that. So that was an extremely busy few years, lots of internal shifts. Now, Co, according to Wolferman, quote, although he was dedicated to the Nelson, he super, super was, he was perhaps not the best administrator, end quote. And yeah, let me say that there is a specific skill set required to be a, not just administer, but a museum administer. The board fired him in 82. He's only been director for like four years, but he was, he was so dedicated. Um, they told everyone that it was, quote, an extended leave of absence. <laughs> yeah, we all knew what that meant. Mark Wilson became the interim director. And the first big credit under his tenure is the museum's name change. So instead of this whole time, guys, I know I've been calling it just the museum or the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art using its modern name, but this whole time it's actually been two museums, the William Rockhill Nelson Gallery of Art and the Atkins Museum of Fine Art, uh, often just referred to as the Nelson or the Gallery, but it officially becomes the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in 1983. And thankfully, he was appointed director, not just acting director, in December of 83. Jay, who, uh, he remained the assistant to the director, but he also became the curator of American art. And then, uh, that was April 83. So by the end of the year, he's like, peace out. And he goes to the Spencer Museum at KU to become the director. Everybody's like, I like it here. I want to be a museum director. And they leave. Um, he was replaced by Henry Adams. And here we go. Finally, in 1983, we also have the museum's 50th anniversary. Woo! Yay! 50 years is a big deal. This is great. Uh, of course, they throw a giant party, but it's kind of more of a fundraising event than a celebration. In January, they announced that their goal was to raise $50 million. Y'all, that's more money that most of us can even comprehend and visualize. But uh, they, they called it the Share the Vision campaign. The goal was, quote, to provide income for operations, conservation of art objects, public service, education, and curatorial function, end quote. And Wolferman's like, you know what? At the 40th anniversary, y'all only generated $109,000. So we're suddenly going, you know, um, 10 years later, we're going to go for 50 million. It's extremely bold. Have to agree. Very bold. But wouldn't you know, they actually did it. Um, they, like, had thought about the campaign and everything. And by the time that they announced it, they had actually already reached almost half their goal. And then during the Labor Day weekend celebration event, Trustee Blackwell announced that not only had they reached the goal, but they had actually surpassed it, and they had gotten $51.5 million. And it, it's Labor Day. It's only September, so they still have, like, five months left. It's impressive. It's very impressive. Ross Taggart retired after the 50th anniversary. He promised he would stay there um, until after the the celebration. 
He had been at the museum for 36 years. His wife, Kathy, had been the executive secretary of the Society of Fellows for 10 years. Um, and Wolferman didn't say when, but I feel like Kathy retired from that position at least a year, if not more, before her husband retired. And remember, the Society of Fellows is a fundraising arm for the museum. All right, so the position of curator for 20th century art vacated by Goheen has remained vacant for two years. It's finally filled by Deborah Emont Scott in September 1983. And she was the first curator of the museum who had a concentration in contemporary art. Two new curatorships were also created in 83. This is a really big year for them. I don't think a curatorship has been created since the museum opened. And both of these curatorships were filled by women, so awesome. Uh, Dorothy Fickle was named the Curator of Indian and Southeast Asian Art. And Mary Jo Arnaldi was named the Curator of African, Oceanic, and New World Cultures. Side note. New World Cultures is super awkward, and it feels extremely outdated. I looked on the website, and I didn't see that department listed, so I hope that means that that phrase is no longer in use. But there are a couple other departments I know for sure that we have that I didn't see listed, so I'm not entirely sure. Um, Mary Jo was also the first curator to also teach at UMKC. Uh, but she resigned in 1985, so just a couple years later, uh, but to go work at the Smithsonian, so right on. A Dr. David um, Binkley, there we go, sorry, I almost said Blinkley, but it's Binkley, replaced her as curator and professor at UMKC both. Um, and he is really great. So he started in 86, and then with Director Wilson's full support, he goes to the board and he's like, yo, our African art section is way too small. We only got like 15. We need like 50. And they're like, yeah, okay, go ahead. Go for it. And he immediately starts acquiring pieces. Also in 84 or 85, I wasn't clear which one. Um, and I'm totally going to butcher this, so I apologize. Waycam Ho, I, I think that's how you say his first name. Um, Dr. Ho became, or how? No. Mm. It's H-O. Okay, so we're just going to go with Ho. I'm sorry. It's probably not correct, but I'm not sure how to say it. Um, he became the curator of Chinese art. And Robert Cohen, who also taught at the UMKC, became the curator of Asian, um, ancient art. Sorry. Cohen is the curator of ancient art. Um, he was still a professor at UMKC when I intended. And unfortunately, I never got a chance to take a class with him. But I did meet him once when he gave a lecture on the Fano Rosso. It's the red fawn, a statue from Hadrian's villa in Rome. It came to the Nelson um, as a part of like a traveling display in 2013. And I got to see that same statue again in the Musi Capitolini in Rome in 2015. So that was super cool. Several, everyone I was with was like, oh yeah, cool. But I was looking around like, oh yeah, I remember you talked about this and this and this. And it's such a beautiful piece. Um, Dr. Cohen is and was brilliant and an awesome professor. Anyways, Joseph Kuntz, 
was hired at the same time to become the curator of medieval and European decorative arts. Sadly, he died in 85, so Catherine Limpet, Limpert, sorry, uh, Limpert, was um, appointed to the position as acting curator until Christina Nelson was hired as the new director of decorative arts in 89. Sadly, Lawrence Sickman died in 1988. Even though he had already retired, he was still a part of the museum. He had a, like an advisory role. So it's a big loss for the museum. And just the art world in general. He has such an impact on it. By the end of the decade, there were a total of eight curatorial departments where there had only been four at the start of it. So we've come a long way. Wilson has been the director through all of this, like through all of the 80s, and he's been writing collection and exhibition catalogs. Several other Nelson employees are also writing publications on the museum's various collections. And now... 1989, we finally come to the Henry Moore Sculpture Garden. So it's established in 1989. It's named for Henry Moore, who was born July 30th, 1898. He was the seventh of eight children. His parents were Raymond Spencer Moore and Mary Baker Moore. He, quote, became one of the most significant British artists of the 20th century, end quote. He died August 31st, 1986. I will include a link to the Henry Moore Foundation on the website. Um, and I wish I could spend more time talking about this dude, but I really need to continue. Today, the Nelson Atkins Museum owns one of, not the, but one of the largest collections of his works in the world. Uh, I believe the largest is actually in New York, I think. The Hall family was collecting his work, and they donated their entire collection to the Nelson in 96. Um, so then they expanded the Sculpture Park and renamed it the Kansas City Sculpture Park. Yeah, before that, they had only, you know, had a few pieces. Now they have a lot. The famous shuttlecocks were added to the Moore Sculpture Park in 1994. They were designed by a husband and wife team. And again, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly because... One is from Norway and one is from Sweden or something like that. Um, Klaes Oldenburg, who was born in 1929 and is still alive, and his wife, Kusi uh, Van Bruggen, born in 1942 and died in 2009. These shuttlecocks are 19 feet tall and they're made of aluminum and fiberglass reinforced plastic. They are highly photogenic and they're probably one of the most widely recognized aspects of the museum today. I only recently found this out when I first started researching the Nelson, but um, they were designed so that it looks like they're in play. So like the museum is supposed to be the net and then there's one shuttlecock on each side of it. Does that make sense? I think that's pretty cool. The museum celebrated its 60th anniversary in 1993. Woo! And this time there's no fundraiser, there's just a big party. Three more resignations in 93. Dorothy Fickle from the South and Southeast Asian Department, Henry Adams from American Art, and Dr. Ho from Chinese Art. Succeeding Dorothy, who moved to Seattle, was Dr. Doris having a really hard time with names today. Um, 
Srivivasan. Okay, never mind. No, cancel that. Um, we're just gonna call her Dr. Doris. Um, Adams became the museum director of the Cummer Museum in Jacksonville, Florida. His assistant, Margaret Conrad, became the new curator of Asian art. And Dr. Ho picked out Dr. Yang to replace himself. Wolferman also reports that in 94, Wilson and the trustees began planning more fundraising, again, for various maintenance issues, particularly the roof needed repairs. That will be the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me as we continue to explore the history of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. I know I still have half of the 90s left, but the 80s were super, super busy and I just ran out of time. Sources, my main source um, is and continues to be the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art and History by Christy Wolferman. Other sources are the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art Archives, um, the Encyclopedia Britannica, and the uh, Henry Moore Foundation website. Links. Okay. Y'all, I'm going to post this on the website. The Nelson Atkins Museum of Art started a podcast in early January. It is now finished. It was only six episodes, but it's called A Frame of Mind. It's hosted by Glenn North, who is an award-winning poet, activist, educator, and art executive based in Kansas City. Y'all need to check out this web- this podcast. It is phenomenal. Maybe make sure you listen to me first because his is better and you probably won't like me as much afterwards. Uh, he is currently the executive director at the Bruce Watkins Cultural Center. And he's also worked with the American Jazz Museum and the Black Archives of Kansas City. And sorry, the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City. So this podcast looks at issues of race in Kansas City through the lens of the museum's history. Please listen to this. Um, announcements. So I recently checked out my museum stats and I owe all of you a huge and heartfelt apology. Um, I've not updated it in like two years cause I was like, oh, nobody cares. But then I saw that a lot of people, a lot of you are actually uh, visiting. So I have already begun updating it. I'm going to continue updating it and, um, I should catch up pretty quickly. So thank you for visiting. I'm sorry I haven't updated until now. Um, More big news. I now have a newsletter, which you can sign up for through my website, which is homegrownkc.wordpress.com. I'm not going to spam you. You're not going to get an email every day. It's probably just going to be once a month, and it'll announce um, new episodes that come out. Um, Maybe a, a couple other things that I'm like, oh, hey, this is cool. I thought you should know. Here's the really big announcement for the museum, guys. Sorry for the podcast. Um, Homegrown KC is going to have its first ever live appearance on Saturday, April 30th. Uh, This is not a live show, but the last Saturday of the month, some people in my hometown of Leavenworth, Kansas, are putting together the first annual First City History Festival. So I'm going to have a booth, and I'm super excited. Please come visit me. It will be at Haymarket... Squared down in, uh, is it Haymaker or Haymarket? It might be Haymaker Square in downtown Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, it's where they have the farmer's market, guys. It actually starts on Friday night with a car show and a 1950s themed sock hop. 
And then the festival will be from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday. All the local museums will be there. I'll be there. Please come say hi. Um, there's going to be an outhouse race, which is a Leavenworth tradition. I don't know its origin. Uh, there's going to be a beard contest, a mustache contest, food trucks. It really sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm going to share a link to the event on my Facebook page, and I'll see if I can also get it on Instagram. I hope you will consider becoming a financial supporter of the show. There are several ways you can do so. You can subscribe to patreon.com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Or you can give a one-time donation at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc or at ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. That's ko-fi.com slash homegrownkc. You can give as little or as much as you want, even as little as a dollar a month. Here's how it works. When you sign up um, and create an account and become a subscriber... You'll be charged on that day and then on the first of every month afterwards. If you become a patron, you get an item from the merchandise store valued at $5 or less. A shout out on each episode. Thank you, Bjorn and Joan, for your continued support. Um, And you also receive access to exclusive bonus episodes which feature local historians, archivists, and museum experts talking about their work and their research and I have so much fun at those conversations. Everyone who simply donates uh, will receive an episode shout-out, but you don't get access to the bonus episode unless you are a patron. Additionally, um, this is really cool and exciting, every donation to Homegrown KC on Ko-fi, 1% will automatically go to help fight climate change. If you support me monetarily, or... It's amazing. I love y'all. And if you can't, I still love y'all. But you can still help support me by following and subscribing to my social media pages. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, and Tumblr. I also have a YouTube channel. Um, I think I only have like two videos on there right now. I have some more saved up that I need to find. And we're going to start building that up. Make sure you rate and review me anywhere you listen, but especially on Apple Podcasts or Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or episode suggestions, you can email me at homegrownkcpodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on any of my social networks. For the merchandise story, if y'all want to check it out, I've got a ton of stuff available. It's www.zazzle.com slash store slash homegrown underscore kc underscore store and that's spelled z-a-z-z-l-e dot com thank you goes out to my very talented sister-in-law sarah mccombs for the creation of my logo to the dear missus for the use of their song kansas city as the intro and outro music of the show and to local libraries which enabled me to gather my research thanks for listening cheers Seem to get you off my mind
that love 